we're in Psalm 134 this morning, so if you have your place in your Bible or in your, uh, in your bulletin, if you'd stand in honor of God's word. It's the word of the Lord. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we ask that you would meet us here in this time. You've heard all the things that I've prayed so far this morning, that you would uh, meet us as you have promised to do. That Lord, as your word is preached, you are there. Your spirit is there. And as you're as your, as your name is lifted up, as you are lifted up, you have promised to draw all people to yourself. And so we ask that you would do that here this morning. For your glory's sake and for our good, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So like I said, we've spent the last 15 weeks, believe it or not, 15 weeks, not counting Easter, walking through these Psalms of Ascent. And you've heard this a bazillion times, but I'm going to keep saying it. As a matter of fact, I heard just a couple weeks ago, someone else repeated to me, which just encourages me to keep saying the same things over and over. Um, I know it's like you expect it to be the opposite response, but it's actually not. So these are psalms that you would sing on your way from your home to Jerusalem during the feasts that happen periodically uh, three, four times a year. And, and the reason why these are important is because they are not only about heading to a feast, heading to a celebration, they are about life, in particular life with God. And so um, that, what I have loved about this is they set up our life with God and our faith as a journey. Now, I know it's all hip and metro to say like, I'm just not where I want to be on my faith journey right now. But normally what that means is it's talked about someone who thinks of themselves as spiritual and what they mean by faith journey is nothing more than an excuse to never actually come to a conclusion on anything. That's not what the Psalms mean when they talk about faith as a journey. They're talking about our life with God and that that life with God is a journey. It is a journey because we go through different experiences, right? We go through highs. We go through lows. We have periods of doubt followed by periods of just fervent belief. It's a journey. And because it's a journey, that means that there's different expressions of faith throughout it. There's different ways that we walk with God in those periods of distress. There's different ways that we walk with God in those periods of provision. And of course, the periods of arrival, very different from the other two. And so that's what's so awesome about these Psalms. They give us words for those at times. And so what I want to do this morning and we'll get to Psalm 134 towards the end. But what I want to do is kind of sum up what we've seen throughout this series. What does it look like? How, does the, how do these psalms as a unit inform our understanding of this journey? And so here's what we're going to see this morning. On our journey with God, the way down is the way up. And on our journey with God, the way down is the way up. So as always, there's an outline if you want to take notes. If not, don't worry about it. Let's, let's start off with this real quick note about Psalm 134 and kind of as a way to come into this. Psalm 134 is the last Psalm of the last cycle of these Psalms. Okay. You've heard this. You're probably sick of hearing it. That these Psalms exist in 
pairing or, or triads in threes. It is a psalm of arrival. It's not about distress. It's not about provision. It's a psalm of arrival, which is why you have everything talking about praise, right? Everything in this psalm is blessing and bless and praise and all this stuff. And, and what it does is it allows us this breath. Arrival is a wonderful time to look back and evaluate, right? Like th- this, is why, this is why New Year's always is a great time for us to kind of reflect on the previous year. Like, okay, we made it. What was this year like again? Like, how, how did this work? And we look back and we evaluate. And so arriving is a good time for us to look back. Now, as we look back, I would, I would, I would want to kind of bring out this notion. Most of us, most of us have either come into the faith or have been led to believe in the faith that our life with God is, is somewhat either static. I mean, some of us, right? We're kind of like the faith is just something we do on Sundays. And so it's kind of like, I mean, yeah, I'm doing okay. Me and Jesus, we're all right. We're just getting along. And others of us have the sense that like, Life is always on the increase. That our, that our relationship with God is always supposed to be moving upward. And that is because, both of those things, are because we are Americans. And, and especially like Western, part of Western culture. Even in this postmodern period or post-postmodern period or whatever they're, I don't even think they've come up with a name yet, yet for it. We still believe in the concept of progress. Do we not? That's why we have this historical arrogance when we look back on people that are from ancient cultures and we think they're just so stupid. It's because we've progressed so much more. Their problems were dumb problems. We don't have those anymore. Their beliefs were dumb beliefs. We don't have those. It's why we talk about being on the right side of history. It's this notion of progress. That everything's kind of always on the upswing. We're just always being driven by some mysterious power. To a utopia. And so our expectation is, the Christianized version of this, is the expectation is the longer we're Christians, the more our life should improve. The better things should get. The more our faith will grow, the more our behaviors get better. Right? In other words, we expect the normative, and that's an important word there, the normative Christian experience to be one of consistent and ever-increasing joy and victory. Do we not? That the Christian life is just one big set of like, I'm happier and more joyful today than I was last year. And I'm more victorious over sin and the devil than I was last year. Things are getting better. God is good all the time. And all the time. All right. Thank you. All right. Some of you are Baptists. This is great. All right. Now, that's not altogether wrong. It's not altogether wrong. And what I mean by that is in the sense that, like, should we be experiencing something in the means of growing closer and closer with Jesus? Yes. We'll get to that. Yes, that is true. So don't, don't hear me not saying that. What I'm saying is this image of the constant increase is just incomplete. In many ways, it, what it doesn't do is it doesn't take advantage of the how that is to happen. Something these Psalms do really well. And so if that's not it, what does our life with God look like? What do these Psalms teach us? Well, 
Uh, there's an author and pastor, his name's Paul Miller. He's the son of a guy by the name of Jack Miller, who was a, a pastor, started, um, started what is now Surge, which is a, a uh, mission organization. It used to be called World Harvest, and then there was some confusion, so they changed the name. Uh, but in his book, in Paul's book, The J-Curve, he talks about it like this. Uh, Patrick, can you put up that slide, please? Yeah. That the, the normative experience of the Christian life has to do with us in, the, in, in life. Okay, we're going to start over on the left side. Life, we go down into death and then head up into resurrection. And so this is the idea that, that life is going good. And then something goes on in our life, whether it's existential or situational, kind of drives us down into this valley of the shadow of death. And then God shows up and we, we end up into resurrection. And, but that's obviously not the way we want things, is it? Because the norm, our norm is to go from life to resurrection. That's the way we want it, right? We want life without a death. You don't have to say, you don't have to be like, no, that's not me. Of course you do. No one's thinking like, you know what I want today? I'm hoping for a death. Death would be great in my life right now. And obviously when we say death, we don't mean like literally death. I'm I'm talking about those little experiences that are like an experience of death. Dying to yourself. Dying to your dreams. Dying to your expectations. Dying to your image. This is the way that God seems to work. It seems to be that God seems to think you can't get to resurrection without a death. Right? So uh, one of the writers of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, kind of, he wrote a letter to this church in Philippi and he said it like this in Philippians 3. You can look it up later if you want. He said, uh, that he, what he wanted most of all was to be conformed to the image of Jesus' death so that in some way he might participate and partake in his resurrection. He wanted his life to take the shape of the death of Christ, which is to say, like, he wasn't saying, you know what I want? I want to be crucified. No, Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is, I want my life to reflect a giving of my life for the sake of the flourishing of others so that in some way I might experience this resurrection power of Jesus. This is what the Bible seems to think is the norm. And these Psalms reflect this. This isn't just a New Testament thing. This is an Old Testament thing. That's what we see in these Psalms. So Patrick, go put put up the next one. Right? We have the same thing in these Psalms. We don't start with life, but we still have this distress, right? The first Psalm of the cycle gets us down into distress. The second is God's means of provision. The last one is that means of arrival. This is the way God works. This is the way faith with God is meant to be. And listen, I know know that's disappointing. Because some of y'all got the false bill of sale, right? You signed up, you signed up for the team, some evangelist stood on a, ch- on a stage and asked you to walk the aisle. And what he said was, you're going to walk with Jesus and everything's going to get better because Jesus is powerful and it's all going to go better for you because, you know, it did for him. Right? What did Jesus say? Like, no one is above their master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Unless you're an American Christian, everyone's going to think you're cool. No, that's not the way it works. This is the way it works. This is the normative Christian life. 
We go in through periods of distress. Maybe that's doubt. Maybe that's hardship. Maybe that's a testing of our faith. We head down into that valley. Of course, we don't, right? I mean, you don't. Other Christians do, maybe. But periods of doubt for you? No. Periods of testing for you? Periods where you have to die to things like your image? No. Look, folks, I'm your pastor, right? Well, for most of you. About two months ago, I went through a fairly acute moment of distress that was caused by my own sin. I have been a Christian for like 25 years. And that wasn't my first period of distress. And I am certain it will not be my last caused by me. And this is how the gospel works. Okay, listen, if you're a Christian, listen close. You don't become a Christian through great effort and positive self-affirmation, right? You become a Christian by seeing that you have no hope in yourself. That you have no hope in yourself. You give up on your attempts to, to get your life straight, to clean yourself up before God. Working through your own faith journey. And instead, placing your hope, trust, and faith in Jesus who did it all for you. That is how you become a Christian. And that is also a death That is a time in which you say, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. People don't like me enough. It's not enough. I have to give up on me. I've got to trust somebody else. That is a death. That is a point of distress. And if that is how you come in, look at me. If that is how you come into the Christian life, why would you expect that living it would be any different. That's like saying, I first got into shape through keeping my diet strict and exercise, but now I'm going to keep that up through eating what I want, drinking a lot of beer. There are two different principles. The one is antithetical to the other. And this This situation you entered into is not going to be lived out if you're doing this, right? And that is why Paul says in uh, Colossians 2.6, you know what, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Maybe you don't, that's all right. I'm going to read it, and it's not going to be on the slides because I didn't prepare enough, but Colossians 2.6, this is great. So Paul is saying this to the church in Colossae. This is... This is uh, right in the midst of his, of, of his talking about like how to live the Christian life. And he says this in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. Okay, so there's the entrance, right? Colossians 2.6. Here's how you enter into the Christian life. As you received Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In the same, like, in the same way that you became a Christian, now live it out. In the same way that you first believed, now continue. If you first received him by giving up on yourself, coming to a realization of your sin and need, by seeing also his glorious provision, then that is the same way you and I are to continue to walk in him, continue to grow in him, continue to live. So what we would say theologically, for those of you theology junkies, what we'd say theologically is that justification, being made right with God, that's what that means. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. 
And we would also say that sanctification, being made more like Jesus, is by faith alone, in Christ alone. The way that normally happens is through these cycles of distress, provision, and arrival. That is the normal, the normal Christian life. So what does that mean for you? It means you're not strange. If you're going through it and you've been through it and you're like, something's wrong with me, my life's just not going. No, no, no. That's how it's supposed to be. If you're like, something really bad's happened to me. Yeah. Like, you cannot read the Bible and see this static upward mobility. You can't read it. It doesn't work like that. It didn't work that way for Jesus. It didn't work that way for Moses or Abraham or David. Or, and it didn't work that way for Paul or Peter or James or jo- anybody. It doesn't work like that. I don't know where the lie came from, but it's a lie. The normal Christian life are these cycles. Okay? So what I want to do now is just kind of summarize what we've seen in these Psalms. What, when we go through these periods, these, these periods of distress and provision and arrival, what does faith look like? What does it look like to live Christianly in the midst of it? Well, first, let's talk about distress. What have we seen consistently in the first Psalm of every one of these cycles? Now, I'd say that distress is the hardest one, but I honestly don't think it is. We'll get to the hardest one. I don't think distress is the hardest because some of you in this room can testify that when you've gone through significant distress and when I say significant distress, I don't mean social media distress, right? That's like somebody said something I don't agree with and I'm just so terribly triggered by it. Like, no, that's not distress. Grow up. That's not okay. Okay. Like what I'm talking about is actual hardship, loss of a job, loss of a child, actual trauma. Trauma, not I had a spike of cortisol when someone almost cut me off in traffic. Like I'm talking trauma, okay? And when you've gone through that, didn't it seem like Jesus was just a little bit closer to you than other times? So what do these Psalms show us? Well, first and foremost, what we see in these Psalms, that, the, that life with God in the midst of distress begins with turning to him. Now that sounds inconsequential, but stay with me. How much faith do you think it takes that when you're going through something that is trying, something that is difficult, something that is painful, to turn towards the one who you think not only is kind of overseeing everything, but actually has the power to change it and isn't? It's hard. See, the great thing about the Psalms is that they flesh out the relational nature of Christianity. See, religion in general likes to keep God at a distance. Likes to think that he is to be served but not known. He's to be obeyed but not loved. Not really. It's like, it's this image that God's like an insecure king. That if you even begin to challenge his thoughts on anything, like he just goes into a fit of rage and just wipes out whole populations. Volcanoes start going off and hurricanes and all this stuff. Like you may have heard this. You may have even said it. The one thing you never ask of God is why? You heard that? Maybe you said it. 
See, people say that thinking that's a sign of trust. You know what trust is? Trust is going to someone that you know is in the midst of it and saying like, I don't get it. I, I know you. This seems strange to me. That's trust. See, if you think the only question you can't ask about is why, you clearly have never read the Psalms. Never. Because it's all over the place. It's all over the place. And what we see in the first Psalms of these cycles is going to God in the midst of your distress, engaging with him, with what is going on, and even asking, asking why he's standing by as it happens. Ooh, not sure if I can do that, Rick. Let me... Let me encourage you, like if it's good enough to be in the Bible, it's probably okay for you to say. Just saying. Second, once you've turned to God, what these Psalms also show us is an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty. Here's what I mean by that. Sovereignty is not a word that is used a lot in our in our culture and, and even in our church culture, except in certain traditions. Sovereignty is the idea of God's Uh, providential ordering of all things. In other words, he's in charge. There's nothing that kind of kicks him off the throne, takes him by surprise, like, oh, didn't see that coming. Oh, ah, somebody's throwing off my plan. It is engaging with him in the midst of sovereignty. And I know that we all, like, we love trying to make excuses for God when bad things happen, right? But the scripture's pretty clear that He's in control. We may not understand it, but he is. And these Psalms won't let us do that because there is a firm belief in the midst of these Psalms that he is both in control of things and can do something about what we are experiencing. He's not a gentleman letting things go on without speaking to it. It isn't just a complaint, in other words. It's a complaint noting that God himself is allowing it. So there's turning to him, There's acknowledging his sovereignty, and third, it is seeking his help. Now, that also sounds like a duh, but let me flesh it out. What these psalms show us is not a, Lord, make me strong so that I can do what I need to do. What they're not saying is, you know, Lord, show me the way so that I can handle this. What they are saying is, save me. Rescue me. This is, I can't do anything. And this is important because it is not just the beginning of the Christian life that is about dependence. It's not like you go, Jesus saved me. I've got no hope in myself. And then it's like, I'm good from here on, right? And my family, the way we talk about it is like, dad gets you going on the bike with the handlebars and then he pushes you and he just kind of goes, go ahead. We're like, I can't ride a bike. And we fought like, that's not what God's doing. God does not push you along the way and say, you got it from here, go ahead, I gave, you the, I gave you the boost up. Christianity is not about a boost up. And I say this often, but we need to realize that the biggest difference between Christianity and every other world religion, every other way of looking at the world is that they give you a path to walk or something to do. And Christianity gives you a person to trust and something to receive, not something to go do. And so in your distress, will you seek help to be rescued by him? Or you just want to nudge. You know, Jesus, I don't really need rescue. I just need you to, can you just make me a little bit more patient? Can you, 
you know what would really help is if you just gave me the right answers to the test so that I could take it and do well. Can you give up your control, in other words, and ask for his best for you? Or are you going to cling to your self-protection? So that's faith in distress. Next, what does faith look like in the season of provision? The season of provision is where you're watching God show up. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen this. Like you're not necessarily out of the distress, but in the midst of it, you're watching him provide. You're watching him show up and you're like, like this is a sweet time. This is the time where you're just, you're experiencing this intimacy, this, this, it, it, there's nothing like it. It is, it is this place where in the midst of something that should be awful, you're just noticing God walking along the way. Okay? And no, this is not like the silly old footprints poem about like, there was only one set of footprints. There's always one set of footprints. Good grief. I didn't need you until life got hard. Then you picked me up. Like, have you read the Bible? No, I don't know. that It makes for great Christian tchotchke stuff, but I don't, yeah, anyway. All right, that was, uh, doesn't, just, we'll erase that out of the recording. Okay, so what these Psalms teach us is that during this season, in the midst of this season, the first thing that in the midst of that season of provision, what it begins with is gratitude. Gratitude. Do you know just how hard it is to be thankful? Think about it. To show gratitude means accepting that you had nothing to do with your situation. As C.S. Lewis said, he, he pities the atheist because he, he has no one to be thankful towards. He's thankful, he knows he's thankful, but he doesn't have anyone to say thank you to. But do you know how hard it is to accept that you had nothing to do with your situation? And you know what I mean, like, I mean, no one gets to the beach and sits down and thinks, and a beautiful day, it's just, you know, just warm enough. It's, it's warm enough that you want to go in the water, but it's not so warm that you're just melting and the flies aren't biting you. And all. It's just a beautiful day, and you're sitting there, and no one ever thought to themselves, I am so glad I made this work. Like, I am so awesome. I am so glad this all worked out exactly the way I intended. But everything in us pulls us in that direction. When it comes to our lives, you and I love to take credit for things that God has done. We love to take credit for the work of the spirit that God has done in us. Faith in the season of provision means honestly looking at ourselves and seeing that if it were up to us, we would still be in the ditch. Look, do you honestly think if it were up to you, that you, the change in your life would actually happen? Like, I'm not saying, like, you don't want it. Don't get me wrong. All of us want change. All of us want change. Get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, and we're like, <gasps> but do you do anything about it? I mean, you're good for, like, 15 minutes, right? You're like, this is going to be different today. By the time you're done brushing your teeth, you're like, nah, maybe not, right? It's that friction that we feel. And that's for something silly. I'm talking about real change. Like, 
I don't love people. Please help me change. Like I, I am selfish. How do you change selfishness? Like the exact problem is you only care about yourself. How do you change that? But you think you can. Now listen, honestly, some of you have seen dramatic changes, dramatic reversals of your situation. Insane peace in the midst of dreadful circumstances. Do you honestly think that came from you? Really? Again, I keep quoting him, but I mean, he did write most of the New Testament, so I'll just keep doing it. Like the Apostle Paul said it in, in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, what do you have that you did not receive? You're like, I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I bought my house. I did all this stuff. Well, we'll talk about that next week. But what do you have that you did not receive? In the, se- in the season of provision, maybe you are following best practices. Yeah, you're doing that. Maybe you are making better decisions. Maybe you are doing the hard work with your counselor. Maybe you are staying accountable. But if you're seeing your change, can I tell you, if you're seeing change in your life, that is the work of Jesus. When you can accept that and trust the one who is working, then gratitude will follow. So it first off begins with gratitude. And next, we see an acknowledgement of God's promise and trust in it. And if you're not believing me, like, I mean, by all means, later this afternoon, just go through all of the second Psalms in this cycle and look, and you'll see a pattern. Acknowledgement of God's promise and trust in it. Here's what's hard about this particular one. We don't tend to believe that God acts on the basis of his promises. We tend to believe he acts on the basis of economics. I do this, he does this, right? And if I'm not doing this, he's not going to do this over here. That's normally the one that we get caught in. Because, I mean, come on. None of us would say, like, you know what? I need God to act in my life this week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to just read my Bible every morning because that will move him to do it. No, we don't think that. But when we don't do it and we think, oh, this is why things are going bad. Does God act on his promises or does he act according to your actions? I've said this before. I've said it a million times. God is not a Coke machine. You don't put your quarter and press your button and get your blessing. That's not the way it works. He's not waiting for your obedience to then somehow like make things happen for you. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does what he does because he has promised to do so. He saves because he promised to do so. Not because you made yourself savable. He saves because he said, I'm going to do this. He did it, Genesis 3.15. I'm going to do this. And then he kind of works that out and he, he does it. He provides because he promised, not because we are following his ways. This is why the scripture is full of language like, like, um, We love because he first loved us. Here's love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That is the, it is all about our response to God's acting, not our doing to make God act. Everything is in relation to his promise. And so the season of provision is about less of us. It's about more of him. And it's about gratitude that he is good and he is working in our lives. Lastly is faith during the season of arrival. And if I'm being honest with you, this is the hardest one. 
It is the hardest because of two things. First is that tendency that I just talked about, that we tend to take credit for uh, things that God has done. And you don't think that's you, do you? Here's a way to tell. If when you look at your situation, and you can fill in the blanks of that situation, maybe it's your financial situation, maybe it's your family situation, maybe it's your child rearing, maybe it's the way that you're succeeding in your job, and then you look at other people, and you look at their situation, and you go, well, they're not in my situation, their kids are crazy, or they're not as successful at their job, and you think, Maybe I shouldn't say this next part. I'm going to risk it. If you see their situation and you think to yourself, if they had just done what I did, they would be fine. Then this is you. Look, I'm not saying there aren't better ways of doing things. I'm saying that when Paul... There I am again. When Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, and God that gave the growth, what he's not saying is it didn't really matter how I planted or how Apollos watered, but what he's saying is, is that I worked really hard, but any growth that happened is because he did what he did, not because I did what I did. He is admitting that all the best practices in the world can't lead to results if God is not in it. The posture of the Pharisee in Jesus' story. Thank you, God, for not making me like other men. And then he lists all the right things he had been doing. In the Jewish world, best practices. He had done them all. And for him, it's all about his choices and not about the work of the Spirit. And so that prayer and that story isn't praising God, it's praising himself. So listen, li- listen, I mean, there's so many parents in this room. If, if you think that your kids are walking with Jesus or your kids are keeping their nose clean and doing the right things because of what you did, you're crazy. Because there are plenty of people, they're not monkeys. There are plenty of people who do all the right things and don't get the same results. It's not like, does that mean they're just do whatever you, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if you go through these processes and at the end of the day, you look and you go, my kids are believers, like their lives, they're doing well for themselves. You don't go, bless me. You say, praise God. Because yes, can I conform behavior? With most ages, certain ages, younger, the better. Can I change a heart? No. Is there a formula for changing a heart? No. You can shepherd a heart, but you sure can't change it. That's for Jesus and for him alone. So the first reason this is hard is because of pride. The second reason it's hard is because of fear. This is a side that never, in, the, in the season of arrival that never pauses because we're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right? If the last was about self-exaltation, look how great I am. This is about self-protection. I have to keep my guard up because I'm not sure about this God guy. I'm not sure what he's going to do. Is he going to continue to do good things? Sure, this distress went away. But what about the next one? And so, 
we move on. It isn't that we don't see the arrival moment. It isn't that we don't go, oh. It's that we can't allow ourselves to relax because we don't trust that the next thing isn't going to destroy us. This is why this season is the hardest. Because when the need is pressing or when the provision is so obvious, it's like, this is easy. When the need is pressing, there's nowhere else to go, right? I have nowhere else to go. I'm at the end of my rope. That's why it's distress. And when the provision is obvious, it's easy because you're like, I see God working and it just, hallelujah. Like it's just obvious and easy. But when we've arrived, when he is rescued and you're standing on the mountain, that's when we forget about him. Maybe that's because of pride or fear, but the results are the same. We just can't delight in his goodness. Because you see, to live into this season of arrival, you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable. For those of you who just live into the other shoes about to drop, to be able to live into the season of arrival means you've got to put your shield down. Because you can't raise your hands in praise when you've got one clinging to a shield. And for those of you who think you're getting there all by your effort and your swordsmanship, like you got to put your sword down and just say, you rescued me. And that makes you vulnerable because faith in the season of arrival is about celebration. That's what we see in this Psalm. Bless the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place. Bless, 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 bless. It is all about celebration. And to celebrate God, to delight in him, you have to be willing to put other things aside. Which means that you have to admit that he was the one that did it. It's putting aside your pride. But it also means being willing, listen to me, I think this is probably more of a problem in this room than in others. To be willing to stop your hypervigilance and just have fun. That's hard, isn't it? See, my guess is that most of us here are pretty much okay with distress. Now, sure, we wouldn't go, you know what I want tomorrow? Distress. But we're comfortable there. And maybe we're okay with provision. That's what, that's what we would go, that's the sweet spot, baby. Let me get into distress so I can see God working. But the arrival... It's here at this point that we just can't handle things. And so can I tell you, the only thing that's going to allow you to enter into the vulnerability of delight, the vulnerability of celebration is the gospel. Because it tells you that there is nothing that you did to move God towards you, but just his love and kindness. So it frees you to not have to be awesome. You don't have to be. You don't have to take credit. You can go, you know what? I have no idea why my kids ended up the way they did. God is awesome. It's not going to get you invited to a whole lot of speaking engagement, but it's still great. Like, God is awesome. The only thing that's going to allow you to move into that vulnerability and celebration is the gospel. It frees you to be less so you can make more of him. But it also tells you, it frees you from the fear because it tells you that his work on your behalf is not doubtful. 
It's not maybe like up for grabs. It's not like how many balls can he keep juggling in the air? I'm not sure if he can take one more. If you are afraid that he will miss the next thing that comes or isn't really committed to you, look to the cross. There God became flesh to bear your judgment. He loved you and so gave himself for you. In that order. That's how committed he is. Not like, I mean, man, I got a lot going on today. Can you not be in distress today? He said, I want that person with me. And I'm committed enough as the creator of all things to become part of my creation, to suffer indignity and die. You think he can't handle a little distress? He's already done so much more. If he's done that, how much more will he handle everything else? That means you can celebrate his goodness and you can do so with abandon because you don't have to protect yourself and you don't have to be something you're not. You can be you, acknowledging that you were never enough, but he is. Here's the last thing, I promise. Although, if we go over today, it is not my fault. I'm just saying, that guy, all right? All right, no. Here's the last thing. If you're thinking, man, I have messed this up, right? I've messed this up every time. Don't worry. You will have plenty more opportunities. Plenty more. This is the norm. This is how the Christian life works. This is, this is how life with God looks. We go from low to high. We enter into that valley of the shadow of death so that in the very next Psalm, we can ascend to the hill of the Lord. We are conformed to the death of Jesus so that we may take part in his resurrection. Because with God, always the way down is the way up. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to have faith in the midst of uh, all these seasons. But especially I'm going to ask for that season of celebration. Maybe there's some of us in this room who are there right now. We've seen you show up. We're watching it. But we're hesitant to put the sword, put the shield down, and just celebrate. We're afraid what other people will think. We're afraid of how silly we might look. Jesus, you said it was the faith of a child that we must come to you with. It is also the faith of the child that we continue to walk with you with. And last I checked, children are not very self-conscious of how they look when they're having fun. And so I ask that you would give us that kind of faith. Make us into that kind of people. And give us grace to walk during, with you during these seasons of distress and provision and arrival. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.